I still remember the first time I was ever cut off in one of my prayers. I think it may have been the only time. I was a young boy, probably early teens, maybe those tween years, and we were, me and my family were at Pizza Hut. I was there with my dad, and it was my, I was going to pray. And so I prayed, and I was offering this beautiful prayer, and every, it was just so wonderful, and I just felt so great about how good I was praying. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, my dad says, Amen. He shuts me down. <laughs> and I, I don't know the reason why. Maybe he was just hungry, and he wanted some pizza, and I was taking too long. <laughs> but looking back on that, it turns out it was a valuable lesson to me in the self-righteousness with which we can pray. I wasn't offering my prayer to the Lord as a genuine thanksgiving. It was all about me. I was thinking about how important I was, how good the words sounded that were coming out of, of my mouth, how righteous I must have appeared to others. Well, as we spend the next few weeks considering prayer and how we ought to pray, That's got to be a vital topic of interest to us. How are we praying? Are are we praying merely for our own glory, or are we praying for the glory of God? And we learn a lot in our passage for this morning. We're going to have several weeks of topical sermons, expositional topical sermons on prayer. And so we come to our passage this morning in kind of isolation, typically We work our way through books of the Bible, and so we have an understanding of the context of the particular passage we look at. So this morning, just let me remind you of where we are in Matthew and the the context of the Lord's Prayer, of Jesus' teaching here on prayer. You could think of the context in terms of concentric circles. So you have the biggest circle, which would be the entire Bible, uh, but we're going to begin with Uh, the book of Matthew itself. It itself is a genre of gospel or good news. It is a narrative about the good news of the Messiah who comes to bring God's kingdom down to earth and who fulfills all of God's promises throughout Scripture. Jesus is that deliverer that God's people have been waiting for. As we narrow down further, we see that these verses on prayer are a part of Jesus' larger teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. So there's this large block of teaching in which Jesus is demonstrating that He, as God's Messiah, has the authoritative teachings of God. Don't settle for what the scribes and the Pharisees have to say. Here's what I'm giving you, and it is the truth from God's anointed. As we come to chapter 6, we see that Jesus gives a warning. Look at verse 1 of chapter 6. There he says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to apply this teaching in three particular cases. In our giving to the poor, in our praying, and in our fasting. And in this way, Jesus is attacking your tendency and my tendency towards self-righteousness. There's a lot of talk these days about what is the greatest threat that America faces. Some say it is maybe the Russians who are meddling in our elections. 
Others might say it's Islamic terrorists who want to destroy our way of life. Or maybe some say it's the alt-right, or some say it's the liberals, or some say it's Trump, or some say it's fake news. These are great threats to our country. There are dangers to America as a civilization, as a country. And consider also there are many dangers that you face as a Christian living in America. What are those dangers that you face? I want to suggest maybe one of the greatest dangers you face, follower of Jesus, doesn't come from outside of you, but comes from within you, your own tendency towards self-righteousness. Do you feel that tendency? If you don't, that that might be an even bigger threat than you realize. Self-righteousness will either lead you to the dungeons of despair because you know you will never measure up, or it will lead you to a false sense of arrogance because you think you have measured up. If you despair, then you haven't truly understood the grace of God in Christ Jesus for sinners. And if you're arrogant, then you haven't truly understood the holiness of God and what that measurement of righteousness is. But seeing rightly means we will understand our complete inability to measure up to God's standard alongside of Christ's ability to measure up. That he has measured up to God's standard of righteousness and that he has atoned for our sins in his suffering and death. We need not our own righteousness, but a righteousness which comes from outside of ourselves, the righteousness of Jesus Christ for sinners. And this leads us to Jesus' teaching on prayer. First, we'll see in verses 5 through 8 how not to pray. Then in verses 9 through 15, we'll see how we ought to pray. And third, I want to just consider some brief implications of Jesus is teaching here. So first, let's look at how not to pray. Jesus' main instruction here, the first one is, do not be like the hypocrites. Those religious leaders who are actors in a play, who have two faces. On the one hand, they love to parade around as those who love God, but inwardly, it isn't about God at all. They have no concern about God or others, only about themselves. This was me in Pizza Hut. Concerned about my own righteousness. Do not be like them in your prayers, Jesus says. They love it when they pray publicly in the house of worship, in the synagogue, or out in the street corners. They love to lift up their voices knowing that other people are looking at them and thinking how wonderfully they pray. They love being esteemed for their religiosity. Now the word here, being seen, has also the connotation of of shining in front of others. They love to shine in front of others. They love to be seen in a glorious sort of way as they are offering up their prayers. It makes me wonder if we don't need to be a little bit more careful about our own prayers. Am I thinking more of God and giving thanks to Him or of the fact that others are watching me? When I give thanks to God, for my food in a public restaurant. Am I doing it to be seen by others? So that they might think that I am religious? So that they might think I am at a certain level of spirituality? Sometimes I've heard that prayer at meals can be a witnessing opportunity. And that may be true, but we ought to be very careful about parading ourselves 
as examples of great spirituality before others. It has to do with our attitude in prayer. Your reward, your reward will be the smiles on people's faces as they greet you warmly, thinking what a good Christian family you are. But there will be no reward from your Father in heaven. You've already received it. Instead, Jesus says you ought to be eager to pray in secret, and then your Father who sees in secret, He will reward you in secret. You shouldn't be like the hypocrites when they pray, but neither should you be like the Gentiles. Verse 7, don't pray with, don't, don't babble when you pray. Don't pray with vain repetition like they do, thinking they'll be heard for their many words. In other words, the effectiveness and faithfulness of a prayer isn't measured by how many words are in it. Sometimes we think that way, don't we? Calvin says our tongues shouldn't lead the way in prayer, but our hearts should. So we shouldn't get carried away in exuberance to the point where we start just piling up repetitious phrases. Do we think God will see how excited we are and be compelled to answer us? Do we think we have to come up with just the right combination of words and flowery language so that God will somehow be moved to answer our prayers? No, Jesus says God knows what we desire and what we need before we even ask. And you know what? He is ready to give us what we need. Don't feel embarrassed because of your plainly stated prayers. For this is exactly how Jesus teaches us to pray. But we might wonder then, if God knows what we want and what we need before we even ask, well then why even pray? He already knew, knows what we need. It seems like an argument not simply for not being elaborate in our prayers, but also not praying at all. And this is answered by one commentator like this. Believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to Him, or of exciting Him to do His duty, or of urging Him as though He were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they might arouse themselves to seek Him, that they might exercise their faith in meditating on His promises, that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties by pouring them out before His presence. He goes on to say, we must maintain these two truths then, that God freely anticipates our wishes, and that yet we obtain them by praying for what we ask. God delights to move in response to the prayers of his people. Having told his disciples how not to pray, he then instructs them, pray then like this. Now let's understand that this isn't a set form you have to follow. You have to pray exactly these words or exactly this order. The words themselves aren't set in stone. But Jesus does give us a sort of pattern for our prayer. Notice his words are simple and straightforward. There's a logical progression to them. It isn't flowery or particularly impressive language. So let's learn from the Master on how to pray. If Jesus the one who has been intimate in intimate communication with Father and Spirit from all eternity, teaches us how to pray, shouldn't we listen? He knows how to commune with His Father and with the Spirit. He's been doing so for all eternity. Will we say we know better than the Son of God and how to pray? 
Well, notice this prayer is made up of six requests or petitions. We could say it's like the Ten Commandments in some ways, which are split into two tables. The first dealing with loving God and the second dealing with loving others. So here the first three requests are concerning the glory of God. And the second three requests are concerning the good of God's people. So first then, we should pray for the glory of God. Praying to our Father in heaven acknowledges that He is the giver of all good things. It also acknowledges that we are the children of God, our Father who is in heaven. Now it's true that all people are God's children in one sense, in the sense that they have been created by Him in His own image, that they reflect in some way His own glory and majesty. But in another sense, there are only two sorts of people in the world. Those who are the children of God and those who aren't. The scripture says that it is those who are of faith that are the children of Abraham and heirs according to the promise. So it is only those who are in Christ Jesus by faith who are his sons and his daughters. Are you a child of God? Have you come to embrace Jesus Christ by faith? If you have, well then you are a son or daughter of God Almighty. Jesus prays, hallowed be your name. Or may your name be sanctified. Sanctify your name. Make it holy. Let your name be glorified in all the earth. But it's not that his name is less glorious and should somehow become more glorious than it already is. It is that humans haven't properly apprehended or appreciated the glory of his name. The holiness of His name. It is not a deficiency in God and in His glory, but a deficiency in humanity that His name is not glorified as it should be. Related to this request, hallowed be your name, are the next two. May your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God's kingdom, as already said about The book of Matthew, God's kingdom has come down in the person of Jesus Christ. But while he inaugurated it, we still must wait until its full consummation, until its full realization. God's kingdom is God's sovereign and kingly rule over his people. His kingdom comes as the word of the gospel is preached. As the the gospel is proclaimed, the spirit is moving throughout those hearers awakening one here, giving new life to one here, extending God's reign through His people. As the gospel is preached, people come to faith in Jesus and are built up in His church. God's kingdom does not come with a political party or a political leader. It doesn't come by military force. It doesn't come with moral reformation. God's kingdom comes through the preaching of the gospel and the fruit that accompanies it. To pray then for God's kingdom to come is to pray that God's rule would be extended. That God's gospel word would be spread. That those who don't believe in Christ would turn from their sins and embrace Jesus Christ. And ultimately, it is to pray that Jesus would return and consummate his kingdom. To pray God's will to be done on the earth is... as it is in heaven, is to ask God to fulfill all His purposes, that His name would be honored just like it is in heaven, just like the angels in heaven worship Him, that His word would be obeyed 
just as it is in heaven, that he would receive glory and honor and majesty just as he does in heaven. But how often, friends, do we forego praying for the glory of God in our times of prayer? We might skip ahead immediately to our need without thinking about the glory of God's name, the coming of his kingdom, the doing of his will. And if we, if we do have that tendency to move right ahead towards the things that we need and desire, what does this say about our own hearts and minds? Did you know that the most important thing in your life is the glory of God? That's, that's why you were created. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. This is why you were created. If we make requests only about our needs without understanding the glory of God, aren't we just as guilty as the hypocrites who make everything about themselves? Well, we are instructed to pray for ourselves, but only after we have first located ourselves in the context of God's glory and of God's kingdom and of God's will. So we are to pray for God's glory, and we are to pray for the good of God's people. So let's turn now to the the third, third, fourth, and fifth requests. One of these requests relates to our earthly needs, and the other two to our spiritual needs. First, Jesus asks, Give us this day our daily bread. Isn't it kind of God to share His care and concern for our earthly needs as well as our spiritual needs? Give us this day our bread. He he cares about these smallest of needs that we have. Bread, of course, is a, uh, a word which encompasses much more than just bread. Food of all sorts, drink of all sorts, and really all that we need in this life. Jesus is telling us, he's instructing us by his model prayer to ask for your needs. And the way he puts it leads us to be thankful for what we have today and not worry about our needs for tomorrow. I've been thinking lately about my need to grow in contentment and thankfulness. You ever just pause and begin to think of all that God has blessed you with, physically and spiritually? I'm reminded of that that old song I sang when I was a kid, Count Your Many Blessings. Just count them up. Just list them, name them. And, and eventually, as the list grows longer and longer, you, you won't be able to help it. You, you will be pouring forth in thanksgiving to God. You'll grow in your contentment because you'll recognize all that God has blessed you with and you'll begin forgetting about all the things you think you need. Jesus says in another place, don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Give us this day our daily bread. I'll let you provide for us the next day and the next day and the next day. Just give me what I need for today. Notice too, though, that Jesus is concerned about our needs. Much more concerned about our needs than our desires. We should be humble about our needs and suspicious of our wants. Jesus here compels us to dependence upon the Father for our every need. So by praying in this way, we acknowledge that He is the good Heavenly Father who knows what we need and is eager to give us good gifts. Dads, think about it. If your child comes to you and asks you for some food, are you going to give him a stone? 
hear much on this, son. If he comes to you and asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? No, you, even though you struggle day to day in being kind to your children, not being perhaps pro- provoking them to anger, you struggle with your duties as a father. Mother's the same with you. And yet if, you're, if your son or daughter comes to you asking for good gifts, are you not going to give them good things? It's your desire to encourage them, to build them up, to give them what they need. And so Jesus says, if you then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good things to those who ask? This is, through Jesus Christ, this is our posture, or rather God's posture towards us. Because of Jesus and his work, he stands in a posture ready to pour out goodness upon you. Ready to give you your physical needs and ready to sustain you spiritually in your time of trouble. But our needs go beyond merely what is earthly. We also have spiritual needs. And these needs are addressed in the next two requests. Forgive us our debts, Jesus prays. It must have felt strange for Jesus to say those words, don't you think? The one who has no sin, teaching sinners to pray, forgive us our debts. This is the ESV translation, and it's the translation I think is better. Trespasses might be the one you're more familiar with. It it sounds more like you've just kind of wandered on someone else's property, or you've, you've just messed up a little bit. Debts has an appropriate sense of something which is owed, something you've, you've earned, a wage that you are receiving. By our sins, we are building up a debt against God. God's punishment is a wage that you have earned by your sins. And so Jesus gives us this model to pray, forgive us our debts. But you might wonder, haven't we already been forgiven fully and freely in Jesus Christ? Why do we need to continue asking God forgive us our debts? By his perfect life, he has satisfied the righteous requirement of the law. And by Jesus' sacrificial death for us, he has satisfied the wrath of God that was due to us. So why should we pray forgive us our debts? Well, consider just briefly two reasons. First, it reminds us we, cannot, we have a debt we cannot pay. It reminds us that our, we, we continually, in ourselves, would build up this debt. Don't ever begin to think that you can pay back against the debt of sin you owe. It is too great. You will never be able to make up for it. Dave Ramsey spoke at the Southern Baptist Convention this past week, and you probably know that one of the big things on his show, he showed a video while he was there, one of the big things on his radio show is what he calls the debt-free scream. Have you heard of that before? Have you heard people do that before? It's when uh, someone undertakes this class, this course that he provides in order to pay off all their debt. So they just get really extreme about saving and watching their spending. And gradually, day by day, they're able to pay off those debts. And then they come on his radio show and they say, we're debt free. And they just celebrate not having that debt hanging over them anymore. They actually had one couple on the video that had paid off a debt of $1.2 million dollars. When you just feel like giving up, <laughs> I'm just giving up at that point, right? $1.2 million, how do you even begin to think about that? 
But as great as that is, your debt is far beyond something like $1.2 million. The debt that you owe to God because of your sin makes that $1.2 million seem like a drop in the bucket. You owe God more than you could ever dream because of your sin against Him. In the economy of righteousness, there is no action you can take to pay down your debt. You can't save enough. You can't earn enough. You can't begin to make up on the ground that you've lost in your debt to God. And when you pray, forgive us our debts, you are reminded of that. That in and of yourself, you are a debtor. But fortunately, it also reminds us that we have a debt that has been paid for us. Now, Jesus gives this model prayer before his death, but all of his life was leading up to his death. And we are on the other side of the cross. So when we pray, forgive us our debts, we are asking for forgiveness based on the righteousness of Christ and his death on the cross for sinners. Although it was a debt we could never pay, it was a debt Jesus paid instantly by his suffering and death on the cross for us. It was no problem for Jesus who had built up a store of righteousness that makes your debt nothing before God. Have you ever wondered why God forgives sinners? He's not obligated to forgive your debt. Your forgiveness isn't earned by your sorrow. It's not earned by your tears. It's not earned by your good works. If you will be forgiven, it will only be because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We are forgiven in Christ. And we forgive others as a result of this. How how could you not, in turn, recognizing the debt you owed and the debt has been paid for you, how could you not, in turn, then forgive others? Is the debt that others owe you greater than the debt that you owed to God? Well, if you harbor unforgiveness and bitterness in your heart, that's the way you are behaving as though you were owed something greater than what you owed God. We are reminded that we who have been forgiven are those who forgive others. The last request Jesus makes is kind of a double request. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. It's not just that we want forgiveness of our sins, but we also want deliverance from our sins. Don't you, brothers and sisters, want to be delivered from your sins? Don't you desire to sin no more? You want to be free from sin. God has changed our affections. We don't want to be led into temptation that we might sin against God. We long to do that which is pleasing to the Lord. We long for deliverance from sin and evil. Well, the word for temptation here can refer to, is sometimes translated trials or testing, and sometimes translated temptation. While God is never the cause of sin, he never tempts anyone, as, Jesus, as James says, he sometimes allows us to go into situations and leads us into situations in which we will be tested, in which we will face temptation. Really, such is the nature of life in this world, isn't it? We know the, the psalm, where can I flee from your presence? Or where can I go and you will not be there? If I ascend to the highest mountain, still you are there, God. If I descend to the lowest depths, you are there. And we could consider that temptation is the same way. 
Where can you go where you will not face temptation? Martin Luther, when he secluded himself in a monastery, found that sin was within him, wanting to sneak up on him and tempt him. His own sinful desires, this indwelling sin within even those who are saved, still desires us. Wherever you go, you will carry along the temptations with you. But this is a prayer that we might be spared from overwhelming temptations. It's a prayer which really echoes this great eschatological hope, that longing for the end when Christ will come and we will be delivered once and for all. In your struggles with sin, keep your eye on this prize. Keep your eye on this promise. One day, you will be fully sanctified, you will be glorified, and you will be free from temptation and sin. Isn't that good news? So we long for that day. We long for that deliverance from sin. We've seen that the Lord Jesus teaches us to pray with this model prayer. We pray for the glory of God that He might be exalted, that His kingdom would come, that His will would be done here on this earth as it is in heaven. And we pray for the good of God's people, that we would be nourished physically, that we would have our needs met, that we would be restored to right relationship to God. But let me close with a few implications from this prayer. Some things we ought to learn from this prayer in addition to what we've already learned. First, we should pray with simplicity. Following the master of prayer, we should pray with simplicity. So this also means don't ever believe the lie that you can't pray. Children, you can pray. You can offer up your prayers to God. Don't think that you have to have these long and wonderful and flowery words to pray. You don't need a theological degree or specific training in how to pray. You don't need a certain vocabulary. If you are in Christ, you have been bought by His blood. Christ is your mediator, bringing you into the presence of God and the favor of God. He's not your judge in heaven, but He is your Father in heaven. Pour out your prayers to your Father through Jesus Christ. Our Father is not like often we are. When if our, our child has trouble telling us what they want or tr- trouble, trouble telling us what we need, we might hurry them along. Come on, tell me what you want. Tell me what you need. It's not our Father. He knows what you need. He, he is there receiving you with welcome arms because of the love of Jesus Christ. We should pray with simplicity, knowing that he longs to hear his children pray. Second, we should pray with brevity. Now, I don't have a specific time limit on how long you should pray. We, we won't uh, put a stopwatch on those people who are praying up front. Well, if you get to like 20 minutes, I'm sure we'd do something about it. And it is true. Probably most of us need to pray longer than we currently pray. Do you feel that need? Your insufficiency in prayer? But we shouldn't be overwhelmed with a sense of duty that we need to pray a certain length before God will actually hear us. Again, because of Christ and His work for you, God the Father hears the first words of prayer that you utter. He is intent on listening to you. He is not like we often behave when others are talking to us and we act like we're listening only to be ready to to interject our own Uh, thoughts into the conversation our own story into the conversation god listens to you 
This is just amazing to consider that the God of the universe who created all things, who stands in the highest heavens, listens to this little creature who's offering up his insufficient prayers to him. He listens. He is intent on listening. He's eager to hear and respond, to work in the world through the means of your prayers. So pray, knowing you'll be heard, not because of the length of the beautiful nature of your prayer, the number of words, but because you have a mediator in Jesus Christ. Third, we should pray with God-centeredness. Jesus' prayer is completely God-centered. He's the Father in heaven. He's the one whose name is to be sanctified. He's the one whose kingdom and will must come and be done. He's the provider of bread and the giver of good things. He's the forgiver of your debts. He is the one who leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. He's the one who delivers us from all evil. You see, God-centeredness doesn't exclude our physical and spiritual needs. It locates them in the context of the glory of God. In addition to these three implications, let me give you one more practical help in using the Lord's Prayer. How you might use it in your own prayer life. The great reformer Martin Luther suggested this to his barber to let the Lord's Prayer guide your own prayer life. So he said, pray the Lord's Prayer one time through. Just repeat the words. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. And then on the second time through, pause at each request and begin to reflect on the glory of God and how he might be wanting to work in that situation. So pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And then let your mind consider God, how might you glorify your name in my church? How might you exalt yourself in my family, in my neighborhood? Would you, would you move and work so that your kingdom would come to my neighbor down the street so he would receive Jesus Christ? And let your mind ponder in other ways you can pray for the glory of God. Pray, give us this daily bread and then continue to ponder your needs at this present moment. Moment. Asking God to meet those needs and giving thanks for His goodness. Eventually, we will have made our way through the Lord's Prayer, making it our own, as it were. Filling it with praise and petitions and thanksgiving geared toward our present situation. And in this way, we have a pattern for our prayers. We have a guide to keep us from wandering in our thoughts. Does anybody, your thoughts, ever wander in prayer? And we have a God-centered approach to going to our Heavenly Father in prayer. And so as we close, I'd like us to offer up this prayer to God, the same prayer uttered by our Lord Jesus in teaching us how to pray. And we'll let this be our prayer to close out the sermon. It's printed in your bulletins from the ESV, Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13. The amen's not on there, but we'll say it anyway. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Let's stand together as we will worship God through singing once again.